Good morning, Plum Creek. It's great to have you with us today, and I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Our family definitely had a good one. We were up in Ohio with my wife's side of the family, and man, it's always good to be together. But it's also good to be back home, and I'm glad that you're able to worship with us today, whether you're here in the room or you're watching online. And today, we are wrapping up our series called The Test. I believe this has been an important series. We've talked about some of the temptations and spiritual tests that we face. And we've seen that every temptation is actually a question of worship. Because whenever you're tempted, you have a decision to make. Who or what will you worship? Will you worship the one true God? Let Him have first place in your life? Let Him tell you what to do? Or will you put some person or something in the place where only God deserves to be? For a couple weeks now, we've talked about three different categories of temptation. And here they are. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, if you've been around for this series, you know we didn't make up these categories. They come from the Bible, specifically from 1 John chapter 2. So let's read this passage and, and get up to speed here. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So we all have these three strong desires. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And most of the temptations we face in life come from one of these categories. And each of these desires can lead us to worship a false god or an idol. And here's how it works. First, God has called each one of us to love Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, mind, and strength. And that's exactly what many of us want to do, but sooner or later, something bad happens. Your heart gets drawn to something that threatens to take your allegiance and loyalty away from God. And when you follow that desire, the Bible calls that sin or idolatry. So this series has been kind of a gut check. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the lust of the flesh which can lead us to worship the gods of pleasure. And the gods of pleasure can be things like food or entertainment or sex. And these things are not inherently bad, but when we don't surrender them to God, they become idols. And last week, we talked about the lust of the eyes. And this desire would take you to the gods of greed or the gods of more. Uh, these gods could be things like success, or money, or power. Now today, we'll wrap up this series by looking at that final category, the pride of life. Now what do you think about this one? What's this about? Well, the pride of life is the temptation to make your life all about you. It, it's the, the temptation to put yourself in the center of the universe, to cast yourself as the main character in the movie of life. And the truth is, if we're being honest, we all struggle with this every single day. So I tried to be honest with myself this week 
I think about my own struggle with pride, and I immediately thought of a current example. So here's my confession. I am the manager of a fantasy football team. It's called the Ramen Express. Now, you may be familiar with fantasy football, but just in case, here's the basic idea. If you want to play fantasy football, the first thing you do is, is you join a league with other managers. In my case, I'm in a league with several old friends. And then, sometime before the first game of the NFL season, you have a draft. And you and the other managers will choose real-life players to be on your fantasy team. And then as the season progresses, these real-life players will score points for your imaginary team based on their real-life performances. Now, here's where my pride comes in. You see, I don't play fantasy football every year. And in the years where I don't have a team, I don't pay much attention to the NFL. But when I do have a fantasy team, I am watching my players every week. I'm watching those games. I'm looking at the stats because I want my players to put up big numbers every week, every game. Now, why do I want them to do well? It's not about them. It's not about their teams. It's about me. And here's the part that I am ashamed of. My favorite NFL team is the Miami Dolphins. I grew up mostly in Florida, and I have been a Dolphins fan ever since the 80s, back in the days of Dan Marino. And this is hard for me to say, but when my fantasy quarterback is playing against the real-life Dolphins, I want my quarterback to light it up. Now, I, I, I still want to see the Dolphins win, to be fair, but I also want those fantasy points even against my so-called favorite team. So see what I mean? It's all about me. It's shameful, and I thought I should come clean this morning. But let's be honest. Fantasy football managers are not the only ones with a pride issue. It's all of us. In fact, I believe pride is the most challenging temptation that we face because the pride of life is really about serving the God of me. It's a strong pull toward the God of me. Back in 1 John 2, if you look at the original Greek, the word pride refers to arrogance or elevating yourself. And that's a good general description, but I have a more specific definition that we'll use today, and it's this. Pride is a personal campaign to prove your own value to yourself or to others or even to God. Now, that may sound like a fairly innocent goal, especially in our time, because one of the highest values in our culture is believing in yourself. Baby, you're a firework. Come on, show them what you're worth. In other words, prove yourself, prove your value, which is a lot of pressure. And this may sound like an innocent thing, but the truth is, the pride of life can have drastic consequences, especially when it comes to your relationship with God. We'll see that pride can be a huge barrier between you and God. So this is a serious thing, and every one of us is vulnerable here. We all need help to overcome this temptation. So once again, let's go back to Jesus 
We've been looking at the true story of Jesus being tempted by the devil out in the wilderness. Now, first, Jesus refused to give in to the lust of the flesh when he refused to turn stones into bread. In the second temptation, Jesus uh, resisted the lust of the eyes because the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said, you can have all these kingdoms, all you have to do is bow down and worship me. Jesus wouldn't do it. Now today, we're going to look at the third and final temptation when the devil tempts Jesus to pursue the pride of life. We're reading this account in Luke chapter 4, so follow along with me. Luke 4, starting with verse 9. It says, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, the the three temptations in this story, they're all foreign to us, right? Turn stones into bread, bow down to Satan, jump off the temple. Uh, These are not scenarios that we face in a normal day. But it's helpful to remember that Jesus was tempted in these same categories that we're tempted. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So what is the connection between jumping off the temple and being prideful? Well, that's that's a good question. But first, let's think about this. Is it really true what the devil said? If Jesus had jumped off the temple, would angels have swooped in to to rescue him? Well, if you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, then sure, this is exactly what you would expect. And here's why. In this passage, the devil is quoting from the Old Testament. It's It's a prophecy from Psalm 91, which makes this very promise, and it's a promise about the Messiah. And Jesus confirmed that he was the Messiah. But there's another interesting comparison here. You might remember what happened on the night before Jesus was crucified. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying. He was getting ready for what he was about to do. And then Judas Iscariot showed up with an angry mob. They were going to arrest Jesus. But Peter, the disciple, he was ready for battle. He pulled out a sword. You remember this? He chopped off a guy's ear. And then Jesus said something interesting. He turned to Peter and he said, Put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So according to Jesus here, he could say the word, and 12 legions of angels would show up. That's 72,000 angels. That's, That's some serious backup. So why did Jesus not call down those angels that night? And and why did he not jump off the temple? Well, as you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, he was definitely willing to demonstrate his power, but it had to be at the right time for the right reason. 
And what did Jesus say to Peter in the garden? He said, if I called down those angels, I would be skipping the most important part of my mission. No, i got to do this God's way. I have to follow the Father's plan, the way it was laid out in Scripture centuries before. That situation in the Garden of Gethsemane was similar to the situation in the desert where Jesus was tempted. Because sure, jumping off the temple, that would have been a great demonstration of Jesus' power, absolutely. But it also would have been a sin because the devil was tempting Jesus to do a good thing, but at the wrong time and for the wrong reason. Now, why was it the wrong time? Because God said so. He made it clear to Jesus that it wasn't time for a miracle like this, not yet. But what do we mean by the wrong reason? What would be a wrong motivation for Jesus to throw himself off the roof? Well, in a word, pride. Pride, uh, that personal campaign to prove your own value to yourself, to others, or even to God. So in this case, uh, what would that campaign have looked like? Well, Jesus could have said, you know what? When I jump off the temple and my Father in heaven sends those angels to rescue me from certain death, that's going to feel pretty good. That would be proof that he loves me. But some of you remember what happened right before Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Immediately before those temptations, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And at his baptism, the Father spoke to him and said, this is my beloved son. I love my son. I am well pleased in him. So Jesus did not have to prove his value by demanding yet another sign from God. Demanding another sign would have been prideful. But there was another prideful motivation that could have driven Jesus to take a flying leap off the temple. Think about it. Uh, The temple was by far the most prominent place in the city of Jerusalem. So so there would have been a huge crowd there to see Jesus jump. And when all those people witnessed this miracle, they would have been convinced that he was the Messiah. And that would have been a good thing, right? It would have been good for this crowd to recognize that Jesus really was who he said he was. And it would have been great for Jesus to become an instant celebrity because that would put his ministry on the fast track. It would save a lot of time. But actually, that would not have been a good thing. Because in this situation, it was inappropriate for Jesus to launch a personal campaign to prove his value, even though he had all the value in the world. But this is not what the Father wanted. Wrong time, wrong reason. And because the father said no, Jesus resisted the devil. And just like those first two temptations, he answered the devil by quoting scripture. He said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now that is an interesting command. Why would human beings want to test God? Well, maybe we want proof that God is real. Maybe we want proof that he is good or that he loves us. But when you think about it, it's it's pretty arrogant for a human being to test God because he doesn't play by our rules. He makes the rules. So there's a lot we can learn from Jesus here. 
See, we're not like Jesus. So many times we're driven by insecurity. We're saying, look at me. Tell me that I am worth something, that I have value. Other times we're driven by arrogance. Like, I'll show you. You will figure out that I deserve your respect. But Jesus was not driven by arrogance or by insecurity. Uh, He already got that affirmation from his heavenly father, so that was enough. He, he wasn't, he wasn't going to start a campaign to prove his own value for selfish reasons. And that takes us to Luke 4, verse 13, where it says, When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So the test was over, and Jesus passed with flying colors. Now, it's been very helpful to look at this story, this passage, because there are so many great lessons here. Uh, One lesson that we learn is the importance of having Scripture in your mind and in your heart. See, this was a, a big reason why Jesus did not buy into the devil's lies. He had the truth of God's Word in his heart. And the same is true for us. If Scripture is in your heart, then the Holy Spirit can bring that to mind when you need it. Another great lesson from this story is that it is possible to resist temptation. We don't have to give in to the desires that are contrary to God's will. And and that's just the beginning. So many great lessons here. But having said that, I do think we need to look at this topic from a different angle. See, with the issue of pride, It's very easy for us to be overconfident. We might look at this story and say, okay, I get it, cool. I'll just be careful about my attitude. I'll make sure that I don't get prideful. But I don't think we've really dealt with this issue of pride until it stings a little bit. And I don't think it's going to sting very much until we look at someone who actually failed this test. So we're going to stay in the book of Luke, but we'll skip a few pages to the right. Luke chapter 18. Now this is a story that Jesus told about two men. One was humble and the other one was full of pride. So listen very carefully to this story. Luke 18 starting with verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. When I read this story a few days ago, I was really convicted. We're all at risk of becoming like this Pharisee, myself included. Do you see the campaign he was running here? He was working so hard to elevate himself in the eyes of others, in his own eyes, and in the eyes of God. And we're all tempted to do what this man did. We're tempted to play a game of comparison because of our pride. 
We, we look at others and we want to find some area, some category where we are superior because we want to feel like we're winning. We, we want to feel like we measure up, like we're good enough. So we pick a category. Like, I am glad that I have more common sense than she does. Or at least I'm not a big jerk like that guy. Or thank God I don't make terrible decisions like they do. And it's interesting, the, mo- the majority of the time, we keep score based on appearances. It's not about what's really going on in our hearts. It's about our image. And, you know, Jesus can see right through that nonsense. If you read through all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is a pattern that should be disturbing to many of us. Jesus saved his harshest words for well-behaved religious people. He had serious issues with people like the Pharisees, the religious leaders, teachers of the law. And these people looked great on the outside. Righteous, godly, all of that. So what was the problem? Did Jesus have a problem with them being well-behaved? Of course not. Did he have a problem with them being religious? Of course not. The problem was their pride. In the story we just read, the Pharisee looked at the tax collector and he played this comparison game. He was like, yeah, that guy's a mess. And God has to see how righteous I am compared to him. But God doesn't play that game. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And God knew that this Pharisee's heart was eaten up with self-righteousness and pride. And because of that pride, the Pharisee had a broken relationship with God. That's the tragic consequence of pride. Pride will separate you from God. Now, I don't want that to happen to me. And I'm sure you don't don't want it to happen to you either. So we need to figure out how to resist this temptation. Well, I I had an idea this week. I knew that I would be standing on this stage in front of all of you in the room, in front of whoever happens to be online, and I thought, maybe I could attack this idol of pride by telling a story that makes me look bad. So I started thinking, what is a story from my life that makes me look bad? And fortunately, or unfortunately, uh, depending on how you look at it, I have many to choose from. But the first stories that came to mind, for some reason, were all car stories. Bad experiences with cars that mostly date from my 20s. For example, there was the time when I bought a Geo Prism. I paid cash for it, but I did not buy collision insurance because I had no intention of having a collision. So why pay for something I don't need? Of course, I got in a wreck, it was my fault, and I lost thousands of dollars when I did not have thousands of dollars to lose. Then there was the time when my little green Saturn crashed into the wall of a Taco Bell when I wasn't even in the car. The car was driving itself. That's a long story. (laughs) I've told that one here before, I told the other one before, but I have one more that I haven't told, and, and this one is especially embarrassing. I was driving a 1989 Dodge Colt 
going down the road, and all of a sudden, the engine just stopped running. I ended up on the side of the road, and I was pretty sure that something was bad wrong with the car. Maybe a broken timing belt. I'd, I'd had that happen before. So I had the car towed to a mechanic. Uh, he got it up on the lift. He checked a couple of things, and then he got back to me, and he said, buddy, I found your problem. I know what it is. You know what it is? You ran out of gas. Now, I seriously did not want to tell that story because it makes me look like an idiot. But the good news is it's out there now, and that means I'm winning my battle against pride, right? Not so fast. Look at how sneaky pride is. See, after telling that story, I can start to feel kind of good about myself. I can start to think, you know, I'm glad that I'm willing to embarrass myself like that. Because there are a lot of arrogant preachers out there. And they tell stories to make themselves look good. And I'm so glad that I'm not like one of them. You see how easily that happens? See how quickly the focus can turn right back to myself? You cannot eliminate pride by trying to eliminate pride. It doesn't work that way. So how can you do it? Well, think about the story of those two men praying. The Pharisee played the comparison game, and the tax collector didn't. As far as we can tell, that tax collector wasn't even paying attention to the Pharisee. And according to Jesus... We need to follow the example of the tax collector. And to follow his example, we need to start by understanding this truth. Comparison is deceptive. It's also dangerous. Because we are all desperate for God's grace. And prideful comparison is not based on reality. It ignores a crucial fact. And the fact is this. Without God's grace and forgiveness, we are all doomed. We're condemned. We're hopeless. Now that Pharisee, he ran a successful campaign, from a distance at least. Everybody watching that day would have assumed that God was more impressed with the Pharisee, but Jesus said, nope, this was not the guy who went home justified before God. And when Jesus got to that part of the story, his listeners would have been shocked. But, how many of us operate with a similar ranking system? How many of us could look across this room right now and say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I know I'm better than that person. When we elevate ourselves based on comparison, we become like that Pharisee. I really believe the words of the prophet Isaiah he said that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Not our, not our sinful acts. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Because compared to the goodness of Christ, we're all at the bottom of the barrel. So do you believe that? Are you convinced of your own desperate need for grace? The tax collector was convinced. Look at how short his prayer was. He didn't care about how he stacked up against the competition. Now, his prayer was the sharp cry of a man who realizes that he is in deadly danger. 
So he cried out, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. He threw himself at God's feet in humility. He knew that he was desperate for God's grace. And for us to reject this false god of pride, this is where we have to start. You don't compare yourself with others because we're all at the bottom of the barrel. So you throw yourself at the feet of Christ. You surrender to Him. You put your faith in Him. God wants to give you grace, but you have to admit that you need it. And if you haven't been humble enough to admit that yet, go ahead and do it. And then if you have given your life to Jesus at some point, but then you started playing that comparison game again, it's time to drop it. And then from there, we can all let Jesus go to work. But get ready, because the process will be different than we might expect. Like I said, we don't kill pride by trying to kill pride. We do that by learning how to live with an attitude that Tim Keller calls self-forgetfulness. See, the gospel enables you to stop thinking about yourself. And this is what true humility is about. And this is counterintuitive for most of us because this is how most of us look at this issue. We, we say, well, pride is thinking too highly of yourself. And that's true. But what's the alternative? Well, we would normally think that the alternative to thinking too much of yourself is thinking less of yourself to cut yourself down to size. But you see, if that's the case, you're thinking about yourself still. And that's not true humility. Rick Warren said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking more about others. And again, you can't do this through your own willpower. It only happens through the gospel. And when I, when I say gospel, I mean the good news about Jesus. It's the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until you got your act together. He said, I love you even while you're still a mess. I know that you're a mess, but I still love you. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he took our sin on his shoulders and he paid the penalty of death that you and I deserve to pay. That is the gospel. That is the good news. You can be accepted by God, but not because of your performance, not because of some public relations campaign where you try to prove yourself. No, you're accepted when you give your life to Jesus, throw yourself at his feet, and you receive the gift of forgiveness and grace that's only possible because of his sacrifice. And then once you receive that gift, goal is not to go around thinking about how much of a loser you are because that's not the antidote to pride the antidote to pride is self-forgetfulness it's an attitude that you learn from the gospel through the power of the holy spirit so how do you know when you're making progress here well tim keller gives a good example he says if you are a self-forgetful person you won't be hurt very much by criticism. Criticism won't keep you up at night because you won't really care too much about what people think. Now, how do you do that? How do you stop caring about what others think? Well, the world has their answer. They'll say, yeah, ignore them. Just believe in yourself. Show them that you're good enough. 
But that's not the solution, is it? That's not self-forgetfulness. Because when your heart is truly being transformed by the gospel, you'll say, no, I, I don't care what they think, but I also don't care what I think. And how is that possible? Well, it's only possible when you find your affirmation and your value and your identity in Jesus. So you don't have to be on trial every day trying to prove that you're good enough. The trial is over. The verdict is in. Jesus says that you are good enough, not based on what you do, but based on what he has already done. So you can cancel the campaign. You can stop thinking about yourself and turn your focus outward. Think about how you can better serve God, love Him, love others. In the end, this is all about worship. It's about laying aside every idol, including the idol of pride, and giving the true God His rightful place. So let's pray right now. Let's ask God to help us overcome temptation, to pass the test, and to worship Him only. Let's pray. Father, I am convicted right now. I hope we all are. Because after we have overcome every other temptation, we'll still be struggling with this one. So Lord, I I pray that you'll help us to put you in your rightful place put ourselves in the place that we need to be and to stop being self-focused. Teach us, Lord, self-forgetfulness to find our identity and our value in you. We need your help to do this. And so we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.